Welcome to Best of Shows, Entertainment Weekly's weekly look at the best of television and the rest of television. I'm Darren Franich, a TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my brilliant colleague and fellow TV critic, Kristen Baldwin. Hey, Kristen, how's it going? It's pretty good. How are you, Darren? Kristen, thanks for asking. I'm doing great. Uh, I'm, I'm especially <laughs> excited about this episode because we will be doing a little EW podcast crossover, Ooh. talking to editor-at-large James Hibbard. He's our man in Westeros. He's got a lot of things to say about the new season of Game of Thrones. We'll be talking to him a little later. But first up, Kristen, it's time for our segment that we call What's New, where we talk about what's new and returning to television. And Kristen... I mean, this is just, this is, this is like Christmas came early and also was Easter and 4th of July and all of our birthdays because The Good Fight is returning to CBS Woo! All Access. Yeah, the Good Fight is back on March 14th. This is, of course, the transcendent television series spun off from The Good Wife, uh, created by and showrun by Robert and Michelle King. Um, the last season of The Good Fight was, I, I think, a truly transformative season. This is a show that is set at a law firm, but it is about so much more than being a legal procedural. Um, we are following along with characters like uh, the great Diane Lockhart, played by Christine Baranski. They're just struggling through everything that we're struggling yeah. through right now, Kristen. It's a crazy time to be alive, and The Good Fight is a great <laughs> expression of that. As we begin the new season of The Good Fight, things seem kind of eerily serene at the law mm -hmm. firm, which means everything is about to go horribly wrong. Um, Donald Trump is still in office, and this show is very much explicitly about characters who do not like Donald Trump very much um, in ways that are uh, very funny and very surreal at times. But this season, in a way, it's less a kind of liberal screed and more just a really absurd and fascinating and sincere look into the minds of very smart people struggling through a time of abject chaos. Yes. Um, I uh, love this show. I, I think it's the best show on television. Uh, I've seen the first four, four episodes of the new season, and I'm just dying for more. Uh, Kristen, uh, how do you feel about season three of The Good Fight? Well, as you know, I love it, too. I mean, we both had it on our top 10 list for 2018. And, uh, you know, last season, as you said, was transformative. And it was about you know, it was more political than it had been in season one, but it's also just not, it's not just about politics. Yeah. It's about other grown up things. And I really emphasize grown up because this is an adult show. Not that it's dirty. It's just that it's for grown ups. But, you know, it's about marriage, parenthood, being a working parent, career ambition. Um, even though it's about grown up things, though, it's not afraid to be silly and weird and sometimes downright crazy. Uh, this season, especially I've seen the first three. Like you said, it's just it's starting to go into completely bizarre places. But it makes sense because mm -hmm. the weirdness makes sense. I don't know how. I mean, just one little little tease. Diane, played by Christine Baranski, gets into an argument with a bruise that is shaped like Donald Trump. <laughs> It's insane, but I love it. And it's and it, it, it's the kind of scene that I think there's a lot of in this new season where it is so willfully strange without seeming like over the top and mm -hmm. without seeming cartoony. Though I will say, Kristen, another great thing about the new season is, um, you know, last year they had this one kind of great breakaway uh, animated sequence, which was sort of a kind of fake schoolhouse rock right. song. Um, this season, they've gone all in on that and every episode <laughs> so far 
right, we'll have this kind of moment where a character says something on screen, and then it's almost like like you're clicking on a hyperlink, and there'll be a little screen that says, you know, it's time for a good fight short, and there will be a whole animated musical number explaining what is a what is an NDA or explaining, you know, who was Roy Cohn. There's just right. There's what's a troll kind of, farm? Yeah. What, what's a troll farm? There's such a playfulness to it. Um, you know, you sort of mentioned the real great character work that's happening here, and I think that's the other essential thing to remember about the good fight because it's it's easy for me to just get so wrapped up in just how wonderfully strange it is but this is really a show where you know all of the characters are, are so rich and they're all just played by actors who are doing such good work yes um, you know there's so much great stuff this season with uh, the character Liz played by Audra McDonald um, who joined last season but in a way I, I think this season so far feels like it's even more of a showcase for her yeah um, she's going through a lot of kind of fascinating um, emotional traumas, essentially, um, you know, some kind of having to do with uh, her deceased father, some having to do with her marriage. Um, and McDonald's performance is just really uh, astonishing and can be quite raw. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it never feels like it's trying to go to this true detective-y place where it's, <laughs> so, where it's so over the top and dark. There's such a kind of um, sensitivity and, and a good humor to it. Um, at the same time, you, know, you have somebody like uh, Delroy Linda, oh. who, who's Adrian Bozeman. I, I just think he's one of my favorite characters on, on television now. Um, he's very much the person who's kind of trying to keep everything together, you know, as the sort of one of the main partners at the law firm. He is trying to expand the law firm. He's trying to get it through these financial troubles that it's had. And... You know, it's it's just it's just a great character to have on yes. a show where every episode it, it seems as if the tiniest thing will snowball into a rift between everyone in the office. It's the, so the show, true. The, the the show really captures the way in which now it just feels like everyone is so on edge. Everything's a time. landmine. <laughs> and at one point he says, you know, you don't even need to know the context, but at one point uh, he, you know, something terrible's happened, and 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 everyone's up in arms. Arms. And uh, Adrian Bozeman, he says uh, to another character, I don't have the luxury of outrage right now. And like yeah. that's that really says who he is in this. You know, he's the one who's like, OK, well, we got to deal with it. He's got to try to balance a lot of different uh, uh, stakeholders. And he's trying to keep the firm afloat. Uh, of course, Darren, we have to talk about the new addition to the cast this season. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't even. He's so good. It's so incredible, Kristen, because, of course, having read your great feature about The Good Fight, you'd been telling me a little bit about Michael Sheen's uh, entry into the show for a while. And even so, I was not prepared. Uh, Michael <laughs> Sheen um, Michael Sheen uh, is joining the show. He was a character named uh, Roland Blum. And, like, his first scene, Kristen... Ugh. It just, it's a performance where I initially thought he was doing an imitation of one of Al Pacino's, like, crazier performances. <laughs> but but then I realized, like, oh, no, like, he's he's so far beyond. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, what, you know, what Al Pacino was doing in Scarface or Dick Tracy, it's just such a full performance. He's, he's playing someone who is very explicitly said to be the sort of spiritual heir of, of Roy Cohn, of, of right. someone who's like, he, he very much is like a, a, a Trumpist from way back when. And, you know, it's the kind of role that 
it's so over the top and it, it, i'm not sure it should work because it is just no it's so, crazy you know, the, the, the accent he's doing is almost like a chicago gangster accent from the 30s but right just, it's it's so do, do you think it's it's just like the show has now evolved to a point where it can fit someone like that in i i, I find his performance so fascinating it really is and i think i mean i think he's just good enough to make this completely ridiculous character he's a very flamboyant and corrupt and flashy dressing drug addicted attorney but you know with this crazy accent that's sort of new york and sort of chicago and sort of god only knows and but it's in xanadu kubla khan (laughs) a stately treasure dome decree is a typical thing like literally that's the thing and but i think what's smart about how the show introduces him is they put him with uh the character of maya played by rose leslie and they are for reasons that you know you they have to work together on a case and they are like polar opposites she's sort of um she's not she doesn't have the confidence that he has she's by the book she wants to do everything right because her father was a criminal like a bernie madoff type criminal and so she wants to you know be the opposite of that and so she's forced to work with this guy and i think that's a very smart way for the show to introduce him because she's the audience being like what the f is happening right now who are you um and she starts to see the appeal of his way of doing things which is as you put it in your review he simply lies the truth into a oblivion <laughs> and you know he sings at one point uh, everybody's everyone's singing everyone is singing it's just it is such a chamber of delights this show and, and it, it almost seems crazy to me how fun it is because it, it is just doing all these really fantastic and serious and moral and and, and political storytelling methods um you know Kristen, one of the things I, lo- I love about the new season is you're sort of talking about how rose leslie's maya is hanging out with yes Michael Sheen's character and their storyline is an example of a lot of things happening where it's almost as if our main characters it's it's like it's like they're catching 2019 like it's a disease you know mm-hmm. like it, it's it's like you know she kind of she kind of learns to be a little bit more like him and what does that mean for her uh, meanwhile um you know Diane's subplot is in some ways the most explicitly political and also the most explicitly surreal um where she kind of gets involved in this resistance movement that essentially starts to question should we start doing the sort of toxic online stuff that our opponents are doing right you know, do, do, do we kind of start using those weapons in our repertoire? And of course, that gets into a question of, you know, what does that mean for us? And, uh, you know, can you do that and still remain the sort of person who is doing the noble thing that you think you're doing? And right. I, I just think to juggle all of that and still be enough of a, like, I don't know, almost a, a, a pulp delight show that you'll have a scene where then, you know, Diane works through all of this by going axe throwing. It's just, it's astonishing to me how the Kings make their television. Uh, I, I just, it, 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 it boggles my mind I, I have no sense of how it happens except yeah, that i love it. it just and all of, all we can do darren and all we have been doing basically since we've been working together is tell people to just watch it just watch it yeah. i would say honestly start with season two you don't even yeah. need season one and you don't even need to have seen the good wife which i basically never saw a whole episode of yeah. all you need to know is you know read read a plot summary of the season one finale and you'll know exactly what you need to know and it's just it's a work of art and uh, I wish more people would see it and I wish the frickin Emmys would nominate it
Yeah, I, I know. It, it is funny that the one nomination they got last season was for that little schoolhouse rock yes. musical number. And so my my theory is the reason why they're doing like all the songs this year <laughs> is they want to just own that category. They're like, that's going to be the Good Fight category this year. Um, the Good Fight is on CBS All Access. Please, please consider subscribing. I know it's one more streaming service to look at, but uh, it is certainly worth it for this show alone. Uh, it returns on March 14th. Let's shift gears and shift continents now, yes. Kristen, to a slightly slightly more somber uh, TV series, uh, but one that is uh, nevertheless very entertaining. Um, the uh, miniseries Manhunt, which comes from the UK, uh, this is a true life procedural uh, in, in the kind of old-fashioned sense of literally being about the procedure of solving a crime. Uh, it is set in 2004, and it follows the police reaction to a death in Twickenham Green. Um, the uh, main character is played by Martin Clunes, an actor who uh, our man in the UK, Clark Collis, informs us is one of the most famous people <laughs> in the United Kingdom. I had no idea. None. <laughs> he, he plays uh, the true life investigator Colin Sutton, and he is such a... He's such a kind of TV star. And I mean, this is a huge compliment. He could only exist in the United Kingdom. Yes. Because um, he, he just he just looks like a regular dude. No, really. he, no. He looks like a troll doll come to life. He is straight up homely. And yet you just love him. And as I, yeah, he's a 57-year-old homely white guy. And yet he's the most famous man in the UK, apparently. Um, and his uh, his performance, it's just a very interesting, you know, if, if you like the sort of British class, of uh, police procedurals. Um, I, I would say that like this very much kind of fits in with that history insofar as it's it's kind of almost a character study of him in a way, of, of Colin Sutton, mm -hmm. who's just a very, you know, rigidly straightforward and almost kind of bureaucratic in investigator, um, incredibly detail-oriented. He has uh, one line early on that sums up his personality, uh, which I wish I understood, where he says, I'm more John Major than Churchill when it comes to speeches. <laughs> so um, I'll have to ask Clark Collins to to explain what that means exactly but he's just a very um st it's a very stripped down kind of a performance it's the kind of role where you know as he's investigating this murder and again I, you know colin sutton himself the real life colin sutton is one of the creators of the show um and, and so you know the show is very rigidly kind of following along how they investigated and it's the kind of investigation that i, I just i always love when tv shows do this where they get into the nitty-gritty yes. of a of a police investigation because you know there's a point where they're using lots of CCTV footage and they figure out, okay, we're looking for this kind of car where this kind of thing has happened to the wheel. And it's like, well, there's thousands of those cars in this country. And How they just have to comb it? through it. There's one There's one moment, sorry to interrupt you, where they're like all literally looking through grocery store receipts. <laughs> rolls and rolls of grocery store receipts. And, you know, it's important. And that ends up being a really key you know, part of the case. But yeah, you're right. It's really about the meticulous kind of uh, mundane work that that goes into solving, in this case, multiple murders. And as as much as the show is about the sort of mundane situation of them investigating this one murder and how that then seems to relate to more murders. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I assume some of this is like less of a spoiler for people from the UK. Yeah. But for, for me, knowing very little about this case, it's very interesting to see the kind of uh, track it takes. Um, it, it, it just you're consistently just very up close with Colin and with the kind of investigators who are around him. 
as they're just following the clues, there's a lot of straight up bureaucratic stuff yes. that comes in. Uh, Kristen, you, you were sort of laughing a little bit at the fact that everyone on the show seems very dismissive of uh, where is it? It's, it's Surrey. A town that's, Surrey. Lo- it's so British. The whole show is so British, and there's this like subplot about how the you know the London police kind of look down at the Surrey Police Department and oh, what is, what do they know in Surrey? And I had to ask Clark. I was like, literally, what is Surrey? Why and is then, everyone hating on Surrey? And, and he was like, well, it's a county which you can think of as like a state. And he said that he can imagine that you know that the London police might think of it as a bit of a backwater. But what's interesting about this is that Colin. Uh, is openly disdainful about Surrey, but his wife works at the Surrey oh. department as an analyst. And like, he's so focused, like he doesn't, he's so focused. He doesn't even realize like how hurtful that is to her when he's like, "Ugh, those morons in Surrey. She's like, hello, I work there. <laughs> at one point she says, where do you think I work? But so it, it is an interesting character study about like how it's not just, this is the, who this guy is at home and at work, you know? And, yeah. uh, I also just love that everybody calls him Gov. Yes. Everyone calls him Gov. And it's like, it's just so British. And it's only three episodes, Darren. It's three episodes. And really, you know, it's such an easy watch in that sense. Um, And I would say, too, you know, the third episode is, in a lot of ways, the most thrilling and the strangest. There's a really interesting thread uh, that I assume is is ripped from True Life, which is all about when suddenly um, the news of the world enters the picture. Which, of course, you know, if you kind of know anything about the recent history of British tabloids, like, that's a big red flag for like uh oh like this is a, yeah. this is an interesting an interesting like aspect of the history of the moment is when suddenly the news of the world and en- enters the picture in the midst of a live investigation um but i i just found it to be just a really fun a- a- and fascinating three episode binge really i mean I, you you could watch this in the time it takes you to watch you know one episode of a netflix drama so it's it's, yeah. it's very easy to dive in whether you know the history of, of the case or not and it's streaming on acorn Acorn TV, which is basically a service that exists. Um, Acorn TV is like a hub for to- you know so many British uh, shows, and it's like if you if you want to go down the rabbit hole of like British uh, police dramas or you know the pastor who lives in the little quaint little town and you know his his adventures, like Acorn TV is the hub for that. But it's you know it's four ninety nine a month. I looked this up because I wanted to make sure we were telling people you know if you're going to watch this you have to pay but there is a seven-day free trial Hey! So you can binge Manhunt and then cancel your free trial. Yeah, Sorry, you Acorn. Can, yeah, you can you can watch something starring the most famous person in the UK, Martin Clunes. Like, Literally, what are you, what are you I had for? no <laughs> idea. Okay, now let's move on to our next show, our final show of the week. Uh, it's a comedy starring Saturday Night Live Emmy nominee slash goddess A.D. Bryant. In Shrill, which premieres March 15th on Hulu, Bryant plays Annie, an aspiring writer who's got a horrible boss and a completely useless boyfriend. After a major life event that I won't spoil, Annie decides that she's no longer going to let people dismiss and degrade her because she's overweight. There's a lot to like about Shrill. It's got a great cast. In addition to Bryant, who gives a funny and emotionally nuanced performance, Lolly Adafope is hilarious as Annie's roommate Fran, and John Cameron Mitchell of Hedwig fame is a perfect douchebag as Annie's boss, Gabe. Uh, plus, Julia Sweeney and Daniel Stern play Annie's parents. 
sometimes, though, Darren, the show is a little too naive for its own good. Like, Annie is shocked to discover in episode two that trolls are posting mean comments on her first online article. And she becomes kind of obsessed with tracking one particular troll down. And Shrill is based on a book of essays, Shrill notes from A Loud Woman by Lindy West. And sometimes it does feel a little like Annie is speechifying a bit about how hard it is to be heavy in this culture, which clearly it is. Overall, though, Shrill is a well-acted portrait of an overweight woman trying to live her life with dignity in a world that often treats her with disdain. Uh, Darren, what did you think? How many episodes did you watch and what did you think about Shrill? Uh, I, I watched the first episode and, and, and then skipped ahead a little bit, and uh, I had a very similar reaction to you, Kristen. Uh, you know, A.D. Bryant really has become one of my favorite people on Saturday Night Live. Yes. Uh, I, I really find it incredible that she is kind of just really adeptly entered entered into almost the kind of Phil Hartman space where she can yes. either be she can either be the most over the top person in a sketch, or she can be the kind of like straight man in a sketch and then do both very well. I'm I'm always fascinated by this kind of SNL two sport athletes. Um, and I, I, I guess I'm glad that she's gotten this uh, kind of showcase part. Um, there's a moment in the first episode, uh, which I won't spoil. It has to do with that big life event that you're talking about where the camera just kind of holds on her face mm-hmm. for a while. Um, and it's really great acting and in, in, incredibly sensitive. I, I wish the rest of the show were put together with that kind of delicacy. Yeah. Um, I, 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 it just felt, very synthetic to me in a lot of ways like she's kind of working at this journalistic institution that looks like every other TV startup um, I, I I was a little less into John Cameron oh. Mitchell I feel like I, and I listen I, I love I, I love the guy I feel like on this and on girls both for some reason he, he's just cast as like the most over-the-top douchebag yeah and and you know if he were the only character who were like that maybe it would be fine but you know in episode one um, it, it very much just feels as if everyone is just a little turned up to 11 yeah, and, yeah. and, and in, in a way that is not necessarily serving the show. This is definitely the kind of show that is both a, a comedy and is very much trying to be about serious things and serious subject matter. In this case, it's about her kind of struggling with like body image issues, which, you know, I, I think that in terms of performance, A.D. Bryant really sells that. I wish the show around her just were a little... A, a, a little smarter about how it kind of juggles its different tones. Yeah. Um, how do you kind of feel about it? having seen a lot of the season, Kristen? Do you kind of think that is there a sense of more coherence as the show goes along? You know, it. there are some really great moments and there are some side characters and their interactions with, uh, with Annie that really make the show that are really stand out. And I wish that the show focused a little bit more on Annie as a three-dimensional person than Annie as a woman, as an overweight woman trying to, you know, be comfortable in her own skin. And I know that's that's that seems a little contradictory because I think in large part, you know, the point of this show is to give representation to people out there who, you know, are overweight and who feel dismissed by society. But I do think that I almost wish that the show 
had started with a season two mentality in that Mm -hmm. like Annie had already gone through a lot of this journey and she was still, you know, she's never going to be completely comfortable in her own skin because none of us are, but it would have been great if we could see her at a point in her life where maybe she's six months into her sort of evolution as a person who feels like I deserve dignity and I'm going to live my life that way. Um, Just because it would give more time for, um, some of the other funny storylines and for just some of the other funny things that happen uh, that aren't related to her being uh, overweight, like her terrible boyfriend, Ryan played by Luca Jones. He's really funny as her awful boyfriend. He hosts (laughs) a podcast about Alcatraz out of his living room and it's called talking Traz. Like that's just sums up how awful he is. There's one random side plot where like, uh, uh, Annie and and Fran's dog accidentally eats some psychedelic mushroom pills and uh, goes on this trip. And Ryan comes over to like babysit the dog, and he does mushrooms with the dog to like keep the dog company. And like it's so stupid, but it's really funny and sweet. And like I wanted to see more of sort of those characters and letting those that element of the show um, uh, flourish. And yeah. and maybe if the show you know, it's only six episodes, I don't know if. They're planning on doing another season, but maybe if the show were allowed to continue, it would be able to sort of let go of the idea of, you know, we're here to represent, we're here to represent a certain type of character, a certain type of person who hasn't been represented, and they would be able to let go of that mission a little bit and just let the story uh, flourish on its own. Kristen, I love your phraseology of uh, season two mentality. Um, in a strange and not necessarily plot or theme related, but just process related way, um, a show that I thought a lot about watching these couple episodes was the first season of Sex in the City, which was also a, you know, at the time it was a show that was derived from like, you know, a series of columns, which I, I think in a sense, the comparison point of, of, of adapting a show out of essays uh, kind of holds and you know season one of sex in the city kind of infamously had the scenes of Sarah Jessica Parker turning to the camera and it just felt a little bit more like dialectical and right. I, I, I think sometimes um, with a lot of shows there's the feeling of you know the pilot is about the concept and then everything after that you know it's about the characters and it's, it's about their journey and it is it is strange that in this first season it does seem as if the concept sometimes gets in the way and I, I feel I feel half half about saying that because I do think that you know if you're going to make a show that's about representation if you're going to make a show that's about you know body image issues you know I, I think that's incredibly valuable and I think there are some scenes and set pieces in the first season um, that are really great mainly because of you know the performance by A.D. Bryant and mainly because of some of the support that she's getting but I think one issue with a lot of shows now is that sometimes the, the theme or the concept or the message when that's kind of getting in the way of you know what's really kind of good a- about the series um, I think that's a problem and I'd, I'm, I'm you know in the same way that Sex and the City in its second season and onwards was a much better and in a lot of ways more character focused show I, I wonder if that is kind of the journey that uh, Shrill goes on from, from season one yeah and you know overall the more work A.D. Bryant gets the better 
And so she's so good. Um, you know, and I know that this uh, this project is personal to her and important to her. And I think overall, you know, her talent and the talent of the uh, the cast around her, uh, you know, elevates it. Um, but I do think if it is to continue, it, it would do well, as you said, to kind of uh, look beyond the initial concept and be more about these characters than about what these characters represent or what her character represents, really. But yeah. anyway, Shrill premieres uh, March 15th on Hulu, six episodes. So it's an easy binge. They're half hour episodes. And, uh, you know, check it out. Now it's time for TV talk, where we talk about TV. Specifically, <laughs> we talk about the biggest news in television. And the biggest news in television this decade, question mark, is unquestionably HBO's Game of Thrones. The hit fantasy series returns on April 14th. And if there's a new season of Game of Thrones, that must mean there's a new cover story on Entertainment Weekly by our man in Westeros, editor-at-large James Hibbard, uh, who's joining us today. James, thank you very much for being here to talk to us about a show that you know something about. I'm just so excited to be a part of the Cool Kids podcast. You know, you know this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a real thrill for me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is in fact a, a key moment in the EW podcast cinematic universe uh, because James, you and I co-host EW's Game of Thrones Weekly, which will be back in season with uh, the show's return, and there's a new episode that everyone can check out this week. Uh, so I I consider myself the Hawkeye of this Avengers team, though, just so you guys know. Like I, I, I don't know which one of you is Captain America and which one is Iron Man, but I'm I'm just ha happy to be the uh, the, the glue here. Um, James, uh, your feature on the new season of Game of Thrones is so great. Uh, I've read it several times. I, I hope everybody else is going out to uh, check it out. Um, is it fair to describe this season as like the biggest season of television ever in pure production terms? Uh, yeah, I, th I think absolutely so. I mean, the idea of spending 10 months to film uh, six episodes of television, I mean, normally six episodes of a drama series would take two, three months. Um, you know, that's absolutely never been done before. Uh, the, the amount of lavish detail and uh, stunt work and costumes and just just the amount of filmmaking, the number of actors, too. I mean, the show has like 20, nearly like nearly 30 series regular actors as part of the production. Um, yeah, there's there's never been anything like this before. And, you know, it's in some ways unfair to compare it to a movie, too, because sure, you have movies done at this scale of production, but you don't have movies done at the scale of production that are seven hours long. So, so, so when you do a movie, it's not this hard either. So this is really something that that's, that's, that's really unique, you know, you know, just in terms of entertainment, uh, you know, filmmaking in general, it sort of exceeds the boundaries for both. Wait, um, James, I have a question. As you know, uh, I don't watch the show because I don't like shows that kill babies. Uh, I did read all the books so that when I was your editor, I could understand at least part of what you were writing. But what interested me most about your cover story is that the set is so dirty, you actually got a staph infection. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I don't know if I ever showed you that photo. I oh, showed, yeah, you did. Um, 
oh yeah okay yeah yeah it was like it was sort of like like uh grayscale oh. you know which is on the show ex except red and swelling and and eating my head oh my god i'm like um, throwing yeah, yeah, up it, a little yeah, in was, my mouth like that's why i can't watch the show it was too dirty <laughs> and it like infected you it was crazy uh i yeah that was that that was like legitimately scary i i, I was i was kind of freaking out because the first you know few rounds of antibiotics did not work and i you know, had to go to the hospital and and uh and yeah, you know, thank goodness for for antibiotics, you know. So, which you know, I mean, if only Cal Cal Drogo had antibiotics, you know, the you know the the story would be very different. And it just goes to show that you know it it doesn't take much to to take to take someone out back then. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, the the set. Yeah, you know, it's 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 not that's a sort of particularly dirty set in general. It's just that you have uh, so much mud, and you have horse poop, and you have you know rain, and you have dirt, and Ugh. you know you have all these pieces of equipment, and everyone's wearing gloves, and you're picking up stuff and putting it on the ground, and you're you're touching everything, uh, uh. and then if if you if you have like a new beard like I do, you might be scratching your face, and that's a oh, bad God. idea. <laughs> so so you know you end up as one doctor put it, he was just like you you got the wrong bacteria in the wrong place my friend <laughs> oh man but uh, james one thing that i find so interesting uh about this new season is the sense that like you know th there is a purpose to all of this like visceral uh, journalist infecting uh, uh realism that that they're going for um most of this does have to do with the big battle episode of this season right like uh, where, where we're kind yeah. of seeing the final battle or at least some battle with the living and the dead i'm just so fascinated i mean like remember when they used to have to like not Tyrion out during the battle scenes back in season one like it's so incredible to think of how far we've come from then you, you must have felt that really vividly having been to the set uh, you know so often throughout the series's run oh, oh, oh yeah I mean the, the the amount of resources they've, they've had to stage battles has gone up with every season and you know and we talked about this in, a bit in the last cover story is their the showrunner's big fear early on was there's no way we can do this show I mean there, there's no way we can do what we're planning to do in the later seasons especially in the final season anywhere close to a tv budget and so they kind of had to do it the hard way which was we have to make this show into the biggest show in the world in order to justify getting the money we need to finish the show, <laughs> you know, which is, which is, which is just, which is just nuts. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's like, it's like, the, it's such a hard task that they set out for themselves. Yet once they're on that road, they sort of felt like they had, they, they had no choice, but, but to, to make it what it became. And, you know, amazingly, you know, they, they pulled it off and, uh, uh, you know, the, the numbers for this season, in terms of how much it costs are, are pretty well hidden. But I mean, if, if for instance, the battle episode, I mean, there's no way that costs less than, you know, 20 million and, you know, probably, you know, a fair amount more than that. And that's not counting all the money that the, the sort of previous sunk costs, like like all the different uh, uh, set pieces and, and pieces of, of, of costume and props and all the other things that kind of you know, go into the show that were built along the way that help add to what's on the screen. My, my conspiracy theory, though, is that uh, the whole season is still less expensive than one episode of the Romanoffs was. <laughs> I, I, don't have, I don't have any evidence for that. It, it's just a feeling that I have. <laughs> so, James, 
games, um, as you know, again, that I, I haven't really kept up. Can you give me like a two sentence summary to just, oh, no. <laughs> just how would, no. if I wanted to pick back up for the final six episodes, well, why, what would you tell why, me? Why, why would you just watch the final season? I mean, there, there's, there's so, so much that's amazing that that's like happened along the way. I don't care. Just, um, just give me a, just give me a summary. <sighs> two sentences. Let's go. Go. Um, Okay. 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 Uh, a a large group of friends and foes are banding are, are banding together to fight uh, the army of the dead coming from the north amid a power struggle that continues to wage uh, for for the for control of Westeros as well. Wow, that one was really sentence. good. That, that, that was only was, one sentence. Was, yeah, I mean, it was close to a <laughs> run on, the, but it was it, one I mean, long sentence. Is it, no, that was excellent. Now I feel like I'm caught up. And I'm just going to get in there. It's, sure. It's, 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 <laughs> sure. It's, it's funny. You'll, you'll, you'll follow things great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. James, I, I had not mentioned this to you, but uh, my mother-in-law, who's never watched the show before, is planning on jumping in just for this <laughs> final season. <laughs> she's, she's, she has said that like she will keep a running tally of questions she has during the season premiere. Uh, I can only imagine that that list of questions will itself run to the length of a George R. R. Martin book. So, But I, I it, is, it is interesting, though, James, you know, uh, you were sort of like, we're having fun with the idea of the showrunners kind of said the only way to do this is to make our show the most popular thing in the world. But they, they kind of did. And like, I'd love to know, I mean, this is an impossible question, which is why I can only ask you this. Um, what was it you think that made Game of Thrones the phenomenon that it's become? I mean, like, what, what were the X factors? Like, it, it still seems so crazy to me as someone who, you know, read and loved the books and watched the early seasons the kind of snowball rolling down the mountain effect that this show has had over the last right. five or six years is really astonishing. I mean, do you have any kind of like back of the napkin theory for, for how this sort of happened, how it became the sort of phenomenon that it's become? You, you know, I think any kind of pat short answer to that, you know, does a bit of disservice to all the elements that went into it because it was, because I don't think it was any one thing. And, and I, I think if you sort of single out one thing, it does a bit of a disservice to all the other things that, that went right to, 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 to make it what it is. I mean, you know, for, you know, for, but story-wise in the very beginning, it obviously changed television by killing off its main character, nine episodes into the show, <laughs> which I don't even think anyone's done since then either. Uh, you know, that, that, that was such a head turning moment that, you know, this is something, this is a show that's doing something uh, totally different. And, you know, I, I do think the show has gotten increasingly excellent. Uh, you know, uh, you know, some people different argue about this season's better than that season. And, 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 you know, I wouldn't argue with, with, with any of those arguments, but, but, you know, in terms of production value and in terms of the, the performance of the actors and, and, and oftentimes in terms of the writing, you know, I do think it's continued to, to level up and try to stay one step ahead for the most part of, of, of fan expectations. And, you know, I, I do think a lot of credit goes to uh, the showrunners, uh, you know, you know, David and Dan, I, they, you know, there, there, there are fans who have quibbles of specific things they did, but those fans are fans who love the show, but quibble about specific things. I always want to say, yes, but all the things that you love about the show, 
you know, you know, those were a result of like a million little decisions that that they made along the way. You know, they're up to their you know necks in 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 making that show. They're on the set, you know, every day, um, you know, making crucial d- decisions left and right. And you know, it's it's you know the amount of work that goes into that uh, that series is 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 is, is, is I mean, it's really sort of incredible. It, it sort of redefines what you think of as work when you see how hard people work to pull this off. Do you think that George R.R. R. Martin will ever finish that book, or is he just going to drop dead? I think he's going to finish that book. Um, I, you know, I've, you know, I've spoken to him, uh, you know, quite a few times, and yeah, you know, I always feel for him. You know, because as as a writer, we all know that feeling of working on something and you're just like, man, I just don't know what I'm doing next with this story. Mm -hmm. And his story is like all these stories kind of woven together. And, you know, his, he's, he's not cavalier about this. I mean, you know, this is something that's really important to him to get right. And I do think that if the show had not come along, that the book would already be out now. Um, Interesting. You know, you know, I do think I, I I do think the show was a bit of a distraction for him, and all the you know opportunities that came along with that show, and and I think you know maybe it even got in his head in his head a little bit too in terms of you have this other narrative playing out at the same time as the narrative you're telling and it's similar but different and there are things that fans you know like you you know like better about your books and there are things that fans like better about the show and you know it's 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 a bit of a mind you know i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on your podcast but but you know what i'm saying (laughs) so 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 he's you know it's uh it's it's been tough for him i do think he'll he'll finish i do get the sense that he's like you know there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel there um you know, then there's still one more book to write, though. <laughs> so, you know, Dream of Spring. So, you know, I, I don't know if I can, you know, vouch as much for that one. Yeah. I, what I find interesting about that, just, you know, as someone who's loved books and show both, is that it does seem to me as if his feeling for the future of the books is making it very clear that, like, a lot of the characters who the show has kind of focused less on, he is continuing to focus on. I've always found that kind of interesting and maybe, you know, totally unique in the history of well of pop culture in general but certainly of fantasy that you have like these two distinct versions now of this story that may ultimately play out just so much differently um and i I guess in a way you know to sort of bring it back to the show one of the things that i love about your feature james is in talking to the showrunners they seem very cognizant of the fact that like this is an ending to their version of the story that they've thought about a lot do you get the sense like I mean, for reading your story, it seems like they've always kind of had an incredibly firm sense of how they want to end it. Um, is that kind of something that, you know, they've sort of maintained that even as the show has kind of expanded, even as the show has kind of become a, a bigger and bigger thing over the last uh, few years? I mean, they've known, you know, they sat down with George R. R. Martin around season three and got his rough draft uh idea of how to end it. So they've known some things from from early on and they've had their own ideas too. And, th- and those ideas have evolved along the way. And I, I have an interview coming out with them later where they sort of, you know, talk about it. They, they were never hugely dogmatic about one thing or another. They would, you know, they wanted to kind of keep evolving it. They didn't want to lock into anything, you know, too early on because they wanted to kind of leave their minds open to come up with better ideas along the way. But, you know, there are things that they've told actors to do. Uh, during different moments on the set 
where the actors have no idea why they're doing something a certain way. And, but those are things that play out in the final season scripts. So, so, so they've been planting seeds like along the way for, for, for this arc, you know, it's, it's not going to be like, you know, you know, they sat down to write the final season and then they're like, okay, now what are we going to do? I mean, this is very, and that's one reason why they pushed so hard to, to end it when, when they did, you know, HBO obviously wanted to do a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more, they would, they would have done like, you know, four more seasons gladly. Um, but you know, they, they had a very clear ending arc in mind. You know, they wanted to go out on a high point. They also knew that doing fewer episodes in a season allows you to put, you know, the full bulk of your money to make a season into fewer episodes, making those episodes better. So that's a, that's an element too. And um, they said that you know once HBO saw once the, once they pitched the final season storyline to HBO, that HBO kind of backed off. Uh, you know, some of their pressure to, to do more because it really is once you know the storyline, you're like, OK, that's about right in terms of, you know, the number of episodes. We've been talking to the great James Hibbard, our man in Westeros. Everybody go and read his feature in this week's issue of Entertainment Weekly. Everybody read uh, all of the things he's published about Game of Thrones. There's more stuff still to come. James, what's coming up next uh, on the Game of Thrones line? Give us a little tease. Give us a little uh, sense of uh, the uh, 30 things that you're working on right now. I literally just posted a story called uh, The Night King Speaks. Game of Thrones actor gives rare interview, which is an interview with uh, with uh, Vladimir Furtick, the, the, the stunt man actor who plays the night king and um we have a red wedding oral history coming up which is cool we got to, got to talk to some people about the, that, that scene that haven't uh, spoken about that scene in years um we have so much content from from the issue to come and I, you know i i really you know I, i'm not just saying saying this as someone works at ew I, th- this issue is really terrific i mean it's, it's 78 pages of all game of thrones content a lot of writers and editors you know really put a lot into this issue over many months there's so much cool content in there we got 16 different covers which you know I've, I've been getting messages from different publicists you know you know around hollywood going they got 16 covers because we have like never done anything close to that <laughs> you know as a, you know you know you'll 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 get the the publicist on like the Romanovs or whatever going, going, you know, you know, all upset and outraged, you know, how many covers Game of Thrones got, but, but it's, it's, you know, and still, you know, there are people that we wanted to have covers on that, that, that we didn't get to because there's so many great actors on the show. So, I mean, it's really a labor of love that unlike anything we've done before. So um, I hope people pick it up. And, and while listeners, uh, while you're going out to buy 10 or 11 of those collectible covers, uh, do also go and check out EW's Game of Thrones weekly over in that podcast feed wherever you get your podcast james is there talking a lot of good stuff and i'm there also uh, saying a little bit of whatever that'll do it for this week's episode of best of shows thanks to james hibbard for stopping by if you like what you hear give us a rating and subscribe at apple Podcasts, stitcher google play or wherever podcasts are potted if you don't like it or you just want to talk tv tweet at us i'm at Kristen g baldwin and darren's at darren franich let us know what you think suggest things you want us to talk about tell us what you like what you don't like but be nice because honestly we're very fragile people until next week i should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So bye.